Okay, so Christian ethics. So tonight I want to do two things. The first would be to give an introduction to the second word, right, ethics. And the second would be to address specifically the title of this first class, right, the difference Christ makes. So what difference does Christ make and therefore Christianity make in ethics? So we start with ethics. When we use the word ethics, perhaps in the most fundamental sense, what we're talking about is a basic human experience, right, and a basic human task that all cultures, all individuals, all societies distinguish and have distinguished in one way or another between good and bad behavior, right, between unjust and just actions, ethical or unethical choices. But it's not just a question of behavior, right? It's also like a question of the goodness of life, the goodness of the person as such, or the character of the person. Of the person. And so when people talk about ethics, they're really talking about these fundamental human questions, or how should I live? What's the good life? How should I behave? And then as societies or as communities, right? how should we live? What's important to us as communities, as families, etc., as nations even? So that's one, uh, that's like the material, I think, of ethics, if you want to think about like a subject matter. That's what you start with, is this basic human experience of having to distinguish in some way between right and wrong, and the effort to live well, right, as opposed to live poorly, right, the effort to be good and fair as opposed to be mean and unjust and vicious, right, virtuous versus, versus vicious. But what we're doing here is, um, is like at a step higher than that, which is um, ethical thinking. Well, in one sense, ethical thinking is intrinsic to the experience, right? Because we're rational beings. And so if you want to act humanly, to some extent, you always have to think about what you're doing. And the better you think about what you're doing, hopefully, the better you actually do it, right? Uh, the better you act. And so there's ethical thinking in the human experience that everyone has, asking themselves these questions, however, consciously or subconsciously, right? What's good? What's bad? How should I live? Etc. But then there's ethical thinking as a kind of intellectual pursuit, right? And that's more of a philosophical or reflexive activity. And what does that do? Well, that takes the, um, the matter of, of ethics that we just talked about, people trying to be good, trying to avoid evil, trying to figure these things out, and tries to think about it more systematically, right? To clarify and systematize ethical behavior and ethical experience. And that means kind of articulating more precisely just what makes something right or wrong, right? What makes an action bad or what makes an action good? And what does it mean to be fair? What does it mean to be um, unfair? What are the virtues or character traits that are good that we should go for in life? And what are the ones that we should avoid, right? What makes a person or actions good? What makes them bad or evil? And the thing about ethics is it's kind of interesting because even though ethicists, right, people with different ethical theories about what accounts for that, for that basic experience, that basic struggle to be good or bad, right, they wildly differ. And so um, like a utilitarian account of ethics, which focuses on the results of an action, um, trying to maximize the benefits of your actions for the common good will be much different than, um, let's say, hedonist 
someone who thinks, well, human nature is basically built for pleasure of one kind or another, and that's behind all human activity, including ethical activity. So what people are after, even when they're trying to be good, is some sort of pleasure that redounds to their own personal experience. And so if you're a utilitarian, if you're a hedonist, if you're a virtue ethicist, where you think that there's some sort of noble um, qualities of character that you always have to go for, well, the way you articulate, well, what is good or bad is going to be much different, right? And especially in certain specific questions. Even though you might all agree that there's differences between um, justice and injustice, there'll be some agreement, but there'll also be a lot of distinction. And so doing ethics isn't value neutral, right? The different accounts that you give of the good life affect the content of the good life or what you think about the content of the good life. And so to a certain extent, um, everyone's an ethicist because we all has, have to ask these questions, even if we don't do so academically or regularly or, or very deeply. If there are any questions as we go along, uh, let me know, okay? There are also differences. So different ethical systems will have differences of, of um, opinion as to what is right or wrong. Different cultures will have different stresses or opinions as to what is right or wrong. Um, but at the same time, I think we can, we can kind of say, well, where does the commonality come from? Right? Why do many people, many cultures, and many ethicists agree, at least on the basic notions that that's a bad way of acting, like stealing or lying? Right? Most ethicists or cultures agree that certain actions are always wrong, murder, something like this. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from, um, on my account, <laughs> it would come from human nature. Right, that our experiences of good and evil being somewhat common are rooted in our human nature. That means they're biologically rooted. Right, some of our ethical norms are from biology. Right, so the um, well, they have a they have a biological dimension at least. Right, that people get married and have children and raise those children. Well, that has a lot in common with the animal kingdom. Right, one of the basic drives of the animal kingdom is reproduce, right? Survive so that you can reproduce your kind, right? And raise your young to, to further the species, right? So the species survives and the species thrives. But it's also based in our rational nature, right? Because I think most people would say that, okay, can you, can you, um, destroy an innocent individual of the human species, you know, so that the species for the good of the species itself. And so many ethicists will say, no, you actually can't do that, right? Because there's something about the human individual that has some sort of inviolable dignity. And there's something about not doing unto, this is the golden rule, but it's also Kant does it philosophically. It's also ethically um, problematic to treat someone or, or hurt someone in a way that you wouldn't want done unto you. Right. And so that, that idea of fairness, of equal dignity, equal rights, right, equal treatment for all people is something that goes beyond the idea that, oh, we're all just doing this for the, for the good of the, the common good or the good of the, of the, of the species, right? And that comes from our rationality. Now, when we get into Christian ethics, Right here, we have an interesting distinction because so for all, if, if you're like trying to do ethics without Christianity and let's say without any revealed religion, your input is basically your experience 
your culture, your tradition, and your own reasoning, right? How do I distinguish between right and wrong? Well, it's what my parents told me. It's what I kind of feel in my heart, right? The, the different drives that I have, but I want to foster those drives in a way that doesn't make me a bad person, right? So there's a certain um, experience of right and wrong that's that's natural to the person because they have a mind, because they're in a community, etc. Now, Christian ethics basically says, well, the input is not just our experience and our reflection about right and wrong, but divine revelation, right? The Christian distinction, the Christian difference is that God has entered history and told us about life. He right? told us about ourselves, told us about him, told us about a relationship with each other. And that has a radical influence, if you're a Christian, right, on how you think about right and wrong, how you think about the good life, how you think about what it means to be a good, a good human being, a good person. And so for a Christian, right, we're not just a being that happens to think and we have certain needs, certain values, a conscience, etc. We have a relationship with God. And God is the source of all goodness. Or God is infinite goodness, goodness itself. All truth. And the human being has a relationship with God and that relationship has been damaged because of sin. We'll get back to that later. We've fallen out of communion with God. And then God, in Christ, has offered redemption and a new life, right? a new chance at being good and a whole new level of goodness in Christ. And so the story of the fall and the redemption is not just divinely revealed, which means it has to be true. If you believe that it's divinely revealed, it has to be true because God can't lie, right? Because God is, is the source of all goodness. And everyone agrees that blatant dishonesty is, is, um, is evil or moral fault. It's not just true because it's revealed, but, right, it's not just true, but it also is going to explain the experience of good and evil in a new way. And so that's maybe the first idea, right? That the difference that Christ makes is that we understand good and evil in a story. And the story is the story of the fall and redemption of man and woman. And Christ is like the center of that story. He's the turning point, right? It was a bad moral story. Christ comes and he gives us a new possibility of goodness. And so the difference that Christ makes first is that he's the answer to the search for true goodness. So without Christ, there's much more vacillating, right? There's much more uncertainty. There's much more kind of guesswork that has to be done by individuals and by cultures. But since Christ is, again, God incarnate, right? Goodness incarnate. And so if you want to know how to be good, you look at God made man, right? True God and true man, perfect God and perfect man. And so this is a huge difference, right? Because before Christ, um, if you think about like excellent excellence in virtue or excellence in mor- the moral life, or even the ability to reach God, which is kind of ingrained in human nature, the ability to kind of um, commune with the divine, well, that was a very difficult task, and it was very, very rare, right? The divine and moral excellence was very hard to reach, and therefore, it was only reached by a few select people, right? Some renowned philosophers or some natural mystics or some people who were just like super good, who never did anything wrong for some reason, right? But that was rare. And it's rare, not just in experience, if you look at history, 
Um, but it, it was also rare. Um, it was also revealed as rare, right? In the, in, in the, in the Bible, right? There's a line from the Old Testament which says, no one is just, right? No, not one, right? Not one man is righteous, right? Not even one. I can't remember what book that's in, but it's a famous quote. Should have looked that up. <laughs> what? Proverbs? Yeah, it could be Proverbs. It's one of the wisdom books, for sure. I'll get back to you on that. Um, no, do whatever you want. You can pull out your phone, take notes, check your email. Make sure the Patriots haven't started yet. Okay. Um, so goodness is rare in Christ. And in Christ, right, um, God offers not just goodness, but holiness, right? A very high level of goodness, a participation in God's own life to everyone, right? To every, to every man and woman. If you get to heaven in Christ, you've reached not just like, it's not like going, heaven is not like going to Disneyland, right? To go to Disneyland, all you need is a ticket, right? And then you show up and you're like, oh, I'm happy here in Disneyland. Maybe if you like Disneyland, I don't like it. Anyway, that's kind of weird. Um, because you don't know who those people are. They got these costumes on and they're waving at you and hugging you. It's like, what? who are you? It's a strange place. Anyway. <laughs> um, so what's the point? If you get to heaven, you've been transformed, but you've become, you've become holy, whether you have to go to purgatory or not. But if you get to heaven, you've become a good person. You've left all your sinfulness behind. And that's available to everyone in Christ. It's not just like, oh, Socrates did it, you know, uh, Buddha kind of did it. He was a good guy, you know, and you find, you know, Gandhi or whatever here and there, you find people. It's like, no, in Christ, everyone can be good and everyone can meet God and commune with God. Right. So the search for moral goodness, which is kind of like, um, uh, tenuous and difficult becomes much more available in Christ. Okay. And this is connected with the second point, which is that in Christ, we receive a new power to be good. So the search means it's offered to everyone. And the source is in Christ, the source of all goodness. And how does that work? Well, Christ gives us a new capacity or power for goodness. To be successful, to be successful human beings. And so we see this in the New Testament. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which is a crazy thing for a person to say. Because he's not just, this means he's not just another person outside of us, but Christ is a way that we enter into. He's a way of life. He's kind of a portal to God, a portal to a new life. I am the way and the truth. And so all that ethical, like, um, fuzziness between different cultures and different ethicists, in Christ, it clears up, right? He's the truth. And the life, right, which is kind of like the way, is, is, St. Paul says it, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're baptized into a death like Christ to rise again to a new life in Christ. And that eternal life, life in heaven, begins now, right? Eternal life is God's life in you, which comes to a certain fulfillment in this life. And then when you die and go through purification, if you have to, it enters into its total actualization in heaven. 
but it's something that starts now. Right again, so it's not like, it's not like the lottery ticket. The lottery ticket or the Disney ticket is simply external. Right? Since I have this external thing, I can go here. No, rather, uh, eternal life is the continuation of a process of sanctification and even deification in this life because in Christ and grace, God's life is in you. And so Christ says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. St. Peter says, in Christ we're made partakers of the divine nature, right? participants, sharers in God's own nature. And that starts here and it has its fulfillment in heaven. And all that means that, all that means perfection. All of it means um, moral goodness. All of it means leaving any sort of injustice, any sort of evil in our heart or our nature behind. Right? It's a totally new life. And all of this is made possible by um, Christ, this new capacity or power for goodness. Where do we get it, practically speaking? Well, in the sacraments, right, starting with baptism. Baptism is kind of like a transformer, right? You know, and you know, if you build a new building or something, that you can't get the you can't get the power from the street into your house without the transformer because it's got to like change the wattage or however it works. So I, I half know this because we were waiting for a transformer in the new building we built at Sparhawk. And so we put up this building, you know, we had every, all the, all the, uh, all the, um, permits, everything was set. And they're like, Oh yeah, we forgot to order the transformer. I was like, how do you have a job? You know, so we were waiting like months for the transformer, which, you know, without the transformer, no power in the building. Right? And so baptism is kind of like that, right? Baptism is this configuration to Christ when we're first baptized that gives you the capacity, kind of like a transformer, right, to receive God's life, to receive grace from God. That's why you need baptism first, and then you can receive communion, and then you can be confirmed. And and confession is only for sins committed after baptism, right, which is very powerful. Okay. Because, you know, we still can sin, obviously. And so where do we get this, where do we get this new life? Well, in the sacraments, in our prayer life, in our personal relationship with Christ, in our prayer, in doing God's will. And so the ethical life used to be, okay, do good and avoid evil at the first precept of the natural law, according to Aquinas. And so it's know the, to do the good and avoid evil, you have to know it, and then you have to choose it. And if you choose it enough, you build up virtues, and then you're on the way, on your way to being a good person, right? That's still there. But now it's doing God's will, doing what Christ wants. The good is what God wants, and the evil is what's against God's will. Right? The good is accepting God's will, being in line with God's will for us and for others. The evil is rejecting God's will. And so good and evil kind of have this, for a Christian, right? have this necessary and constant relationship to God and the will of God. And here, I think, another third difference that Christ makes is a better explanation precisely of evil. Why are people so bad? Are some people really bad? And, and most people are really weak. Even the good people are morally weak. And I think a lot of people, we think, oh, they're good people just because they're nice and they don't beat anyone up, Right? But they still have all sorts of moral, <laughs> moral defects, right? Maybe they eat too much here and there. They drink too much, right? They gossip. And all those things are moral, are moral failings, right? They're not, 
I mean, they're, they're good natured and they don't want to hurt anyone or whatever, right? And a lot of people we know are like this, but they might be like mistaken about some moral issue. They don't agree with the Bible, the church on something. And so even the good people are messed up, right? Morally speaking. No one is righteous. No, not one. Thanks for the semi-reference. Proverbs. We'll go with Proverbs for now. We'll see what happens. Sorry. Homework. <laughs> um, and so evil in human nature um, is a very difficult thing to explain, right? You don't see so many dogs that are really bad at being dogs as you see people that are really bad at being people, right? It's like, oh, man, that's a dysfunctional dog, right? Why is he, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I can't think of any examples that are appropriate. Anyway, <laughs> why is that dog eating grass, right? I don't know. It's like dogs aren't. Oh, no, dogs eat grass. That's a problem. Yeah, okay. Why is that dog eating metal? Yeah, supposed to eat squirrels. Um, right? You don't see like this. You don't see the same amount of dysfunction in the in, in the um, in the proper behavior of nature or of the animal kingdom as you do in people. There's many ways that people go wrong. Big ways, small ways. We know this, right? There's a lot of dysfunction in, in society. And so, um, so before, again, like very few people um, could reach a high degree of justice or fairness, right? And even now it's hard. But now Revelation gives us an explanation for that, right? One is um, original sin. That's a huge one. Because of the fall of our first parents, we all share in the effects of original sin. And there are three important ones. One is a dimming of the intellect. It affects our mind. And so we can't think clearly, as clearly as we, as we could before the fall. And so it's easier to be mistaken in our thoughts about what's right and wrong. Another is a weakening of the will or kind of inclination of the will towards evil. And so even if we know what's right, it can be hard to choose it because the will is weak and it doesn't want to do the difficult thing. And then the third one, which is um, a part of all of our experience, is called concupiscence, right? Or the disorder of our emotions and desires, right? I like Oreos way too much, right? Adam would have one Oreo and say, hey, that was pretty good, you know, before the fall. And then he would move on, you know, it's like, keep eating, right? That's because we're, you know, we're fallen, okay? Or you like something that you shouldn't like, um, something sinful, Right. And so there's an emotional disorder. There's a kind of, there's a kind of war between our emotions and our intellect because of the fall. That's called concupiscence or moral, internal moral, um, disorder. G.K. Chesterton had a great line. He said that original sin is the only Christian dogma of faith that's self-evident. Right. That's evident. Because you just look at, you look at humanity and you're like, well, you see all these wars and, you know, all these vices and addictions and cruelty. And it's like, yeah, something went wrong. <laughs> something. <laughs> it's like a dog with three legs. Ah, something went wrong there, right? It's kind of like, yeah, something's off. Okay. Um, and then freedom. And this is important, right? Because you can't just blame it on your parents, right? At one point you're like, yeah, I know I was born messed up and I inherited these things from my parents, but I've also made some big, Stupid decisions, right? Freedom on the individual level, our misuse of freedom on the individual level is also tied to the 
misuse of the freedom of the angels, right? The bad angels, the Satan falls, and then Satan instrumentally causes the fall of Adam and Eve, right? But that's freedom too. But they represented us. And so in our own life, we have to take responsibility for our own evil. This is very Christian, very important. Um, because it's very easy. See, when Jesus, when Jesus comes, who does he lambaste the most? It's the Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisees don't want to admit that they're bad. They want to be the good guys, right? And so the Pharisees are always finding ways to make other people feel bad about themselves and put rules and stuff and then feel good about themselves because they're the good guys. They're the one who follow the, follows the rules, right? And Jesus has to come and say, you guys are going, you're the ones going to hell because you're not working on the evil that's in you. You're not letting me fix the evil that you need to fix if you want to get to heaven, right? They're resisting this process of goodness, this new source in Christ, this new capacity, because all of that to enter into you, you need to convert. And if you're baptized as an adult, you need to convert. You need to realize that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. You need Jesus to save you. You need baptism. If you sin after baptism, you need to convert, right? And so all of, all of God's capacity to help us is predicated upon our recognizing that, hey, we're messed up and I'm messed up, right? I, I use my freedom um, poorly. To quote the great theologians Led Zeppelin, <laughs> it's nobody's fault but mine. Right? It's nobody's fault but mine. Great song, by the way. If you like rock, it's a great song. Some great breaks in there. Anyway. <laughs> um, okay, great. And that's helpful. It's helpful to know why the world's messed up. It's helpful to know why I'm messed up. And it's helpful to know even more, right, the solution, okay? Life in Christ. Another difference that Christ makes is, is the radicality of the ethical um, of the ethical experience or the ethical possibilities in Christ. Goodness in Christ, goodness in Christ is something radical. You can say Christ wants it all. He wants all the goodness that, that we're capable of. He wants everything. And therefore, he's very demanding. Right, a lawyer asks him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Christ goes right to the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Last Supper, he ups the ante for his disciples and for us. This is the new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's radical, right? How did Jesus love us? On the cross, right? Forgiving with his life, right? Forgiving with his life, giving everything for, for his disciples. And Jesus says, this is my new commandment. This is the new law. It's a moral law for Christians, right? To love, to forgive, to be ready to suffer for each other, right? To, to, to give our life for God. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, right? If one does not deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple, right? These are kind of radical sayings. Um, they're kind of scary because we're weak and he knows that, but they're made possible by grace and by faith. Again, it's God's power in us. 
partakers of the divine nature. And God is love, right? God is self-gift. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. And this is my commandment that you love one another, right? So there are all these, um, there are all these quotes in the New Testament that are very bracing for ethics. It's not just like, oh, all things in moderation or, hey, let's try to be good, you know, to each his own, right? Play nice, you know, you do you, I'm okay, you're okay. He's like, no, uh, let's, you know, you got something in you that needs to die in order for love to live in you. You need to kill your selfishness. You know, you need to die to yourself. You need to be the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies in order to, for my life to fully live in you. And that means always recognize our, our sinfulness and always being ready for the next step, right? What's God's will for me now? What's the step I need to take in faith? It takes trust in Him to grow. What's the step I need to take in faith to keep letting God's life grow in me? Because the seed is there already in baptism, right? <clears throat> if we're in the state of grace, His life is there. He's in us. Okay. And we just want to get on board. The other element of the radicality, this is kind of the positive element, <laughs> this uh, radical call to love. Uh, the other element is that Christ does not, um, he doesn't have any patience for willful sinfulness, right? whether interior or exterior. In a way he does, in a way he doesn't. Okay, so let me, let me, let me clear this up. The way he does it is that he's like, well, there's no excuses for it. Right? If you sin willfully, it's your fault. And he wants us to be good in our choices, not just outside, but also inside. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says in the gospel, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. So it was an ethical law revealed to the Hebrew people. It's also part of human nature, right? The normal human conscious knows that murder is bad. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Obviously, this is figurative language, right? But it's very powerful. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? Be perfect, therefore, as even your heavenly Father is perfect." So again, we have this radical call, right? That like, we, we have to, you know, the saints call this hatred of sin. If you know something's a sin, you have to put your will against it and do everything you can to not do it, right? And overcome it. Um, willful sinfulness is like, you know, very, very bad for Christ. And this call to holiness is very, very serious, right? Um, at the same time, <laughs> 
he wants it all, but he settles for less, which is very helpful because he's so merciful, right? So there's this guy dying on the cross next to him. And the guy says of himself, we've been condemned justly. He knows that he's a bad dude and he thinks he deserves the capital punishment. He, so he's, so he's telling his buddy who's mocking Christ. He's like, what are you doing? You know, this guy's good. We've been condemned justly. And then he says to Jesus, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom, right? Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so at the very end of his life, he appeals to Jesus' heart. He, op- he, he recognizes that he's used his freedom poorly. He opens himself to this new power for goodness. And Jesus says, come on in, right? That's the key thing. And so once you get it, Jesus says, look, you really have to keep be consistent. Go for it, right? Don't fool around. Right? Give yourself, overcome evil. Don't fool around. But when you mess up, the key thing then, which unlocks again the capacity for goodness in us, the capacity for Christ to save us, is repentance. Right? I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need you to forgive me. Right? Mercy. And so the radical ethics is not just that Jesus wants us to be very, very good and to avoid evil at all costs. It's also the radicality of humility and uh, contrition. Um, of saying, hey, you know, I, you know, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That opens to us up to the power of God once again. And that's always there because God is love. And so that's kind of a fourth point, actually, or a fifth point. The whole idea of mercy and forgiveness, which kind of counterbalances a little bit the radical ethics. <laughs> um, because it's like, well, if you read all that, you know, high ideal and you get discouraged. Well, now what do I do? I can't be a Christian because I'm not perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. I got all these defects. Well, no, the key thing with our Lord is just admit it and tell him you need help. If you just keep admitting it and asking for help, you're doing just fine. Because one of the key Christian virtues is <coughs> humility, right? And it's kind of neat to go back to the mercy and forgiveness. What I said before was, you know, the Pharisees get lambasted by our Lord because they're not recognizing that they need, that they're bad. They participate in this the original sin and in their own sinfulness. So they need him to forgive them. They need to open themselves to God again, to redo this communion that was broken by Adam and Eve and by their own sinfulness. Um, but with people who are sinners or who come to him and say, you know, people who come to him in humility and in sinfulness, our Lord is so gentle. Right? He's, you know, you look at the gospel, it's like the adulterous woman, you know, goes, he protects her from the Pharisees who are about to stone her, right? Go and sin no more. The good thief on the cross. Um, just, there's just example after example, right? The woman who washes his feet with, um, with her tears and wipes them with her hair and anoints them. Um, with people who are humble and admit their sinfulness, Jesus throws his mercy on them. And that's what he's here for. It's not the healthy who have need of the doctor, but the sick, right? And he's the divine physician who's come. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so there's this cool paradox in Christianity where, okay, the, the potential is this radical holiness where the saints reach a level where they don't, 
they've gotten over deliberate venial sin. That means they don't even do small things wrong on purpose, right? Consciously. You'll never get over doing a small thing wrong by accident because, you know, someone bumps into you, hey, get out of here, right? And so oh, I overreacted. But that wasn't deliberate. Deliberate means you kind of thought about it and said, yeah, I want to do this thing. I know it's bad, even though it's not a mortal sin, okay? So the saints get to a point where they don't even do in deliberate venial sins. It's a very high level. That's why they go, they go straight to heaven. And they accept all the crosses that God gives them to purify their souls. And when they die, they're at a level where they're already ready for heaven, right? At the minimum level of salvation, all you need to, all you need to do, this is a good survival tool, right? When it, in case of emergency, break the glass, right? Uh, at the minimum level, I think this is church teaching. I'm not sure. Obviously, if you're Catholic, you want to go to confession and receive the last sacraments right before you die. That's the safest way. But I'm pretty sure at the minimum level, all you need to do before you die is say, Jesus, save me, right? Uh, you know, make an act of contrition, be sorry for your sins. Now that takes grace. So you don't want to play like sacramental or salvational Russian roulette, <laughs> right? It's like, oh yeah, that's a nice out. Like treat it like magic. Like all I have to do is make sure, well, you know, God's not, not fooling around. I also think people don't think about purgatory enough because we know God's very merciful. It's been emphasized by John Paul II. It's been emphasized by uh, Faustina, right? All these, you know, Pope Francis. We know that God's merciful. So a lot of people think, well, everyone's going to heaven. I don't think that's true personally because if you read the Bible, Jesus talks more about hell. It seems very real than he even does about heaven, right? But I think a lot of people are saved because God wants it. And because his mercy is so great that if you're just like a little bit sorry, right, for being bad, right, God's going to say, okay, that's enough. I love you, right? I don't want, he does no one goes to hell because God wants to damn them. They go to hell because God has no other choice, right? Because he can't force our freedom, okay? Um, so because of that doctrine, we tend to think, oh, so it doesn't matter, right? Well, I don't know about you, but 500 years in like in hell-like conditions with, you know, devils sticking forks in my gut, you know, to, to get to heaven, you know, I, you know, that's, that's pretty bad, right? Purgatory is pretty bad if you're there for a long time. I think it's bad if you're there for a couple of days too. If you, <laughs> if you, if you, so there's no cheap way into heaven is what I'm trying to say, right? You know, you're either going to get there because you want, you really want to and you do your work here or God's going to say, okay, you were merciful in your last hour and you know, well, now we have some real work to do. And that work is serious work, right? Um, because you're only in heaven if you're purified, if you're holy, if you've been purified of everything, right? And that takes some work of God, you know, of, of God's grace. Um, so when we, when we say that there's this, there's this scale, right? You might say, well, I'd rather just say the act of contrition and get into heaven without doing all that good stuff like the saint, because that looks like a hard life. It doesn't work that way, right? There's no free lunch, right? That's called cheap grace. Uh, I think Bonhoeffer was a, um, he was a Protestant theologian in the 20th century, and he came up with the concept of cheap grace, right? That we kind of think that it's like the Disney ticket, right? And it's not. It's going to take a transformation. And we want it, right? Because if you want to be good, you want to love, and love is work, and love is sacrifice, right? And, and it's worth suffering to love. And so it's not, you know, you can't game the system is what I'm trying to say. Just because God's merciful doesn't mean, well, I'll just, you know, be okay. Well, you're going to be great eventually. 
Um, and if you're great on purpose, you get more reward in heaven. Saints teach that too. Very interesting. There's higher, there's levels in heaven for people who were actually good here and weren't just losers who said, I'm sorry at the end. Okay. <laughs> but again, in case of emergency, right? Break the glass, you know, call the priest, make an act of contrition. All right, great. <laughs> so it's kind of neat, right? Because you see that God is very rich. That there's these different, you know, he wants what's best for us no matter where we are. And so if you're the, if you're like the, if you're like the sinner, well, the best thing for you to do is to convert. It's just start. If you're lukewarm, well then, or just kind of in the middle, well then he wants you to go for it like right higher. Uh, if you sin, well, he wants you to appeal to his mercy. And in a certain sense, we always need all of these, but depending on where we are in life, one of them becomes like more important. Because if you start taking your, your Christian faith seriously, you kind of move up, right? But then there's always a next level to kind of trust more and let him in more and make more, um, more changes. Okay. Humility is also important for ethics because, um, because there's this idea of objective moral truth, right? So the moral law, what distinguishes bad actions that are pleasing to God, actions that are aligned with God's will, and actions that are evil, that will lead us away from God and offend God, the source of that content of the moral law is God. And and God through human nature. So the moral law is kind of like um, the manufacturer's instructions, right, that come with an appliance or a, or a car. And who makes the instructions? The manufacturer you don't get the car and the guy says, okay, now you make the instructions. Oh, I wonder, uh, I guess I'll change these spark plugs every 60,000 miles. No, it's like the manufacturer knows how the car works, right? How, what the best functioning of the car is. And so God is our creator. He's the founder of human nature. He's the manufacturer of all of, of nature. And so God knows what's good for us and what's bad for us. Which means that even if you might... Oh, I really feel, you know, I really feel in my heart this is the right thing to do. I'm really strongly convinced by these arguments that this is wrong and that's right. If you disagree with God, guess what? You're wrong, right? <laughs> that's a good principle for life. If you ever find yourself disagreeing with God, you know, say, ah, oh, I must have made a mistake somewhere, right? Because you're not going to win that argument because he is the source of all truth. He's the source of your very mind, Right? And so if you disagree with God, you're wrong. And so this is important because, you know, the, the, the morality, the Bible, the official teaching of the church on morality, it's not something optional. It's divine revelation to fix us and to elevate us, right? to give us this new life and make sure we don't go off the tracks, right, off the rail. And again, because of original sin, dimming of the intellect, weakness of will, um, moral disorder in our, in our desires, it's very easy to come up with that combination. They all get on the same side. The will's like, hey, reason. Can we find some reason to get out of this rule? Yeah, sure, I'll think about it. And the desire's like, yeah, we really want this. So find some, find some excuse, find some exception, right? Cause I want that thing, right? And so the will says, yeah, I kind of want to go with the, I kind of want to go with the, the desires down here. Hey, reason, hurry up. Okay. Uh, and then we come up with something and it's like, and, and the church says, no, that's not right. Or God says, that's not right. Well, too bad. We thought it over and, you know, you do you, right? Someone said that before, <laughs> right? 
And so, yeah, this is important that it takes part of the humility is obedience to the revealed moral law, right? And that's not something that we can just fudge or, or make up, right? We have to fight against relativism if we're going to be good Christians. The last one, I think, and perhaps one of the deepest and most important, is that Christian ethics, the difference Christ makes, um, Christian ethics is radically relational. What does that mean? Well, it's not a self-help project, right? It's not a project of self-actualization. It's not like, okay, here I am, and I have some ideal and some truth, and then I kind of just work on myself. Um, Even Aristotle got to this. Aristotle said that friendship is virtue or something like it. When Aristotle talks about friendship in the Nicomachean Ethics, one of his first sentences is that. It's very beautiful. If you want to be good, you have to be a friend. If you want to be a good person, you need friends and you need to be a friend because we're social beings. Aquinas says charity, and we know charity is the most important virtue. We go to heaven because we're charitable, right? What you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. Uh, we'll go to hell if we refuse to love. St. Josemaria says that in the forge, very beautiful point in the forge. He says, if I love, there will be no hell for me. Powerful quote. If I love, there will be no hell for me. Um, why? Because love is God, right? And so if we have love in our heart, true love, which is not just good feelings or, you know, wanting to be liked, right? Therefore treating people the way they like us. Goodwill for the person, really wanting the good of the other person, even to our own, um, cost or expense. If we love, well, then we, we have grace because we need God's grace to really love people. And we're loving God in them. And so um, charity is the most important virtue. And Aquinas says charity is friendship with God and friendship with others for the, for the sake of God. And what is, what's at the heart of friendship? Well, it's wanting the good of the other person. Right? It's not necessarily good feelings or affection or even getting along. Right? You can have charity for someone and be their friend from your point of view, even if you have to stay away from them or put them in jail, right? Or hurt them in some way to defend yourself, okay? Um, which is very powerful, I think. You know, all we have, to, to quote other great theologians, right? Lennon and McCartney, all you need, all you need is love, right? So we have Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, sponsors of our uh, class tonight. Okay. Too bad. It's just a, you know, it's a corny song, but it's a very deep uh, theological truth. I like the Led Zeppelin song better personally. But anyway, that's (laughs) neither here nor there. (laughs) Um, So charity is friendship with God. This is Pope Benedict and his excellent encyclical on charity called um, Deus Caritas S. God is love. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's from the first letter of St. John. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. These words from the first letter of John express with remarkable clarity the heart of the Christian faith, the Christian image of God, and the resulting image of mankind and its destiny. In the same verse, St. John also offers a kind of summary of the Christian life. We have come to know and to believe in the love God has for us. We have come to believe in God's love. In these words, the Christian can express the fundamental decision of his life. 
Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. And so to be a Christian is not just to like say, okay, I have new rules because God gave us new rules or kind of, you know, tweak the rules and I have a new power to do it. But no, my life is now about my relationship with a person. And so if I'm going to follow the rules, I'm going to follow them because I love my friend. I'm going to follow them because I love my father. Right? I'm going to follow them because I love the Holy Spirit who's in me trying to inspire this. Right? I'm going to follow them because I love and I'm inspired by the saints. And so it's not just a matter of being good in a vacuum, right, with a mind and, and emotions and a will and then the right rules, but it's a matter of being good in a, like in a family, right, or in a love affair. I'll do anything for you. This is what the saints get to. It's like, I love God madly. I'll do anything. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all to God. Right? That's how real God comes to them because they're kind of always praying, clearing their hearts out of evil, right, opening themselves to God's grace, it becomes like, you know, band of brothers, right? I'll lay down my life for this guy next to me. That's Christ for the saints, for the martyrs. Um, and so it's very relational. We, we, we become people who live with these high ideals, avoiding the sins that the church and the Bible tells us are sins, striving for those high ideals of self-sacrifice and forgiveness, at the same time being humble, but all because we're related to God, right? God is my father, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my brother. Even Jesus is my lover, right? The saints all talk this way. Um, Mary's my mother, right? The saints are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so now it's not just, oh, I have to be good, but uh, can I watch this? Uh, did I drink too much? Uh, right? Because I don't want to go to hell. Uh, no, it's like, this is the way my family acts, right? This is who I am. And I don't want to hurt my friend. And I want to please my father God. And so they become more important to us than our own preferences or than our reputation, right? Or than what is expected to a, of us by society, right? And so that the, the relational aspect ultimately, I think, explains the whole thing. And that's a powerful quote, right? That um, we have come to know and believe in the love God has for us, right? So to know and believe in the love that God has for us means to trust him. If God loves you, it means he wants what's good for you. And so he's asking us to avoid sin in a radical way, to be humble in a radical way, to admit our sinfulness, and to try to be better in a radical way. It's because he loves us. And so one of the biggest things to overcome in the Christian life is fear, like the bad kind of fear of God. And that's the first thing Satan does. It's like very interesting. The very origin of sin is fear of God or doubt, suspicion of God. What does Satan say to Eve to get her to mess up? He says, did God really tell you, right? Are you sure that's what he said? Are you sure that's what he meant? Oh, you won't die. He just wants to keep you oppressed. Right? So he sows the possibility that God is not on our side. And that opens up the possibility of rejection of God and dependence on the self. Right? Breaking the relationship. And so to unbreak the relationship, you have to go in reverse. You have to say, no, God is totally good. God loves me. Jesus proves it by dying on the cross. And so therefore I can trust him to avoid the things he wants me to avoid and to do the things he wants me to do. But that's where the saints kind of go. And we're all called to be saints, right? And, you know, the sinners say, ah, forget that. I'll just, I'll just do it on my own. And we're all kind of caught in between. Like the really bad sinners say, ah, you know, they, they, they totally reject God or right? they hate God. Um, most of us are kind of caught in between lukewarmness. Ah, I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to be too good either. <laughs> 
So we had to like let God in on that too, right? With with humility. Okay, good. Sorry for going so long. Any questions? Well, we started a little bit late, so you know. No questions, Jim? Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> so I've decided I want to be friends with Jesus. Yeah, good. So I have to act ethically. Correct. I'd like to, you know, and I think you kind of work towards this at the end. What's the simplest way I can approach the ethic? So don't sin. Good. Be humble. Love your neighbor. Yeah. Love God, right? That's that right. Reduces to that, right? Yeah, don't sin. I like that, yeah. <laughs> Don't sin, be humble, love your neighbor, love God. Good. Right. Now, obviously, that gets complicated because when you want the good for another or for yourself, sometimes you have to do things that are difficult. And so you need all the other virtues. In order to be charitable, you need, eventually, you need to work on the other virtues, right? If you're impatient, in order not to lose your charity with people, you need to learn to eat that impatience, right? And be okay with being annoyed without giving into the impatience. If you're intemperate, right, you need to learn to curb your ap- your appetites for pleasure in order not to offend God, right, by getting drunk or doing something, you know, I- immoral. Um, yeah, so the other, so this is also a principle of Aquinas' moral theology that charity is the mother of all the virtues, Um so when you try to live charity, eventually you realize that, oh, yeah, I want to love, but I'm too afraid or I'm too inconstant or I'm too lazy, right? And so when you realize that, well, you have to do two things. You have to, you have to be humble, ask for the mercy. Maybe you go to confession, admit these things, get grace in on there. And then you have to work on it, right? Yeah, with patience and perseverance. Yes. So you talked about you know the by accident sins, right? The ones that like someone bumps into you. And you but if you're truly conformed interiorly, shouldn't we not snap in those the heat of the moment? Isn't that the goal? Yeah, that's the goal. But that'll never. You always have something to keep you humble, right? So Saint Paul talks about this. Saint Paul, you know, in Romans or Galatians, one of those two, right? He talks about to keep me from being too elated um, by the mysteries, right, or something like that, the gifts that God was giving him, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh, right? We don't know what that is exactly. But I think, you know, sins of weakness or faults that we'll always have are important for our humility. Because when you start to grow in virtue, it's very easy to look around and say, I'm better than that schlep over there, right? And we all do this anyway, even though we're not that good, you know? We find ways of, of like saying, yeah, I'm pretty good, right? You know, I'm not like, eh. yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, you're right in the sense that those will, those will decrease the more one grows in holiness. But the saints, in a certain sense, it's paradoxical. They think they're bigger sinners than anyone else, which is very neat because they start to see themselves more clearly, right? God gives them more and more vision of how much they depend on him for their goodness and for their existence and how little their own freedom is really contributing, <laughs> without God's grace, is really contributing. Well, without God's grace, is not contributing at all, actually. Um, but how little their own freedom is really doing in their life. And so they become, they become more and more conscious that what they're really responsible for without God is simply sinfulness, right? Their resistance to God. And so the greatest saints many times they are convinced that they're the biggest sinners. Even though they know, they're not like, they're not like idiots, right? They, they know that they're doing good. 
Um, but God gives them this interior awareness of, of a very clear awareness of their, uh, of their faults and, and, um, sinfulness. Yeah. St. John Marie Vianney, by the way, is an incredible story. He's got a, he's an incredible life. He asked God for, he was a very innocent guy. The biographers say he probably never committed one single mortal sin, you know? Um, but, uh, so he's a very, very good guy, very innocent, obviously very holy guy. And at one point he asked God, show me, you know, give me a true self-knowledge, right? I want to see myself as you see me and my sins. And God gave him the gift of seeing like his sinfulness as it was. And he said it was so hard to deal with, so painful that he said, God, take it away, right? So it's enough to know in theory that you're a sinner. <laughs> um, and if God wants to give you that better experience, then go for it. Uh, are we doing yeah? Question or? No, I was just gonna say, I, I think, you know, we're talking about mothers, we're talking about that first reaction, like, you know, and I, I think you were like, I was just talking about, like, I just, just <laughs> because you're, you're, you're not gonna, you're, it's just like a reaction you have, but it's that act of the will that, you know, oh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be mad at Ellen because you just hit me. You know, I think uh, God does keep us humble. So it's, it's not that we're not responsible for that first reaction. Right. But partly. Because if it's just a reaction, it's not... Well, it depends what you mean by reaction, right? So, yeah, there's degrees of voluntary... This is a technical point. There's degrees of voluntariness. And so this even enters into our law system, right? So, like, first-degree murder versus manslaughter. And so, you know, uh, crimes of passion, right? Um, yeah, so... Uh, but the instant reaction of just like, you know, yelling at someone. So did you do that on purpose? Probably, but it wasn't as fully on purpose as if, you know, you went home and wrote this nasty email and made it nastier on purpose. That's really going to hurt, you know, and, and then went and, you know, sent it to the guy, right? Um, yeah. So those are kind of, that's the distinction that we're playing with here. Yeah. It's similar to thoughts, right? So I learned in my adulthood that Absolutely. You know, thoughts can, even if you think something bad, it's sin. No, but relax, relax. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about them, but I didn't say it. No, there too. We'll, we can have a class about this if you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we will. Freedom. But yeah, there too, it's like, okay, there's degrees of voluntariness, right? And so this is very important because the problem with with um, well-formed Christians, one of the one of the one of the disorders that you can fall into is scrupulosity, right? And scrupulosity is a fear of sin that's exaggerated, right? That's not balanced by God's love and God's mercy. Okay, and so the scrupulous person thinks that what is not a sin is a sin. Okay, and they don't trust in God's mercy enough. And so, yeah, you know, uh, your thoughts. Um, Thoughts are like feelings or emotions in the sense that many of them are automatic. Okay. And so you're only judged, you're only really judged by what you do with your will, with your freedom. Okay. So if you have bad thoughts and you don't like, um, let your will develop them or let your will, you know, foster them or kind of give into them. Well, then they're just temptations really. And they're for God's glory because God knows your thoughts, right? Um, so if you have thoughts that are unwanted, um, that's just part of God's plan for you to, to struggle, you know?
It's actually a blessing. Temptations are good. Swat them away. <laughs> right? No, yeah, swat them, yeah, swat them away. Swat them away, but stay calm, right? Because if you're just like, ah, I don't want to, you know, it's like, don't think of the pink elephant, right? So you have to admit, okay, yeah, I'm thinking about bad things, you know, and then you say, okay, God, look, you know, help me out here, and you try to think about something else, right? But if you're just like, don't think about the bad thing, don't think about the bad thing, well, you're going to be thinking about the bad thing all the time, right? <laughs> and that's why, you know, OCD and scrupulosity kind of go together, you know? Yeah. And so you have to like, yeah, don't think about the bad thing on purpose, but you have to at one point say, okay, I'm a person who thinks about bad things. That's just the way my mind works. And I'm going to try not to like, you know, enjoy them or de- delay, you know, over them, right? Or foster them on purpose. But I have to be calm about it because if not, I'm going to drive myself out of my mind. And God doesn't want that, right? So you just say, okay, there's the bad thought. St. Jose Maria would say, it's like the traffic cop. You know, here comes the bad thought. You recognize it, you pass it along, and then you look for another car, right, with Our Lady in it and Our Lord or something like this, right? So, yeah, recognize, move on, and then fill your mind with something better, right? That's the key, I think, is not so much don't think about that, but think about something better instead, right? Yeah. Yeah, poor people, they can really suffer because, you know, this happens to the saints. I just read in the, the Diary of Divine Mercy, Sister Faustina, um, you know, her mind just becomes full of blasphemies, right? Hatred of God, you know, you know, like cursing God and stuff. It's not nothing in her will. It's just, you know, it was a trial that God sent her, right? And so they kept with impure thoughts, kept with hateful thoughts, kept with blasphemous, blasphemous thoughts. And it's not a sin, you know? And the fact that you're so upset by it shows me, this is what I tell people confessional, the fact that you hate this condition so much shows me that you don't want to have it. And so if you don't want to have it, how can you be, how can it be, you can be responsible for it in such a way that God would send you to hell for this? Don't be silly. He died for you on the cross. Okay. Um, great. Any other questions? Wonderful. We didn't start with a prayer. Bunch of pagans. We can, we can finish with a prayer. Okay. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Saint Gabriel, Saint Paul, Holy Mary, hope handmaid of the Lord. Okay, thank you.